This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. From inflation to the rising cost of healthcare, in today's economic environment, many patients may delay or choose not to move forward with recommended care because of the cost. By accepting the Care Credit credit card, you can help more patients get the care they want and need without delay by offering a convenient way to pay for coinsurance, deductibles, and care not covered by insurance. Plus, when patients use Care Credit, you receive payment in two business days, helping to increase cash flow and reduce self-pay receivables, enhance the patient experience and help increase satisfaction and loyalty with Care Credit. For more information or to get started, visit carecredit.com slash MGMA podcast. In today's MGMA Insights podcast, we welcome our panel of thought leaders, Claire Ernst, MGMA Director of Government Affairs, and MGMA consultants, Dr. Chris Sinkowski, Jessica Meinsinger and Owen Dahl will explore key trends, best practices, and innovations that are shaping the future of medical practices. So now we can finally dive into the star of today's show, and that is the panel discussion. And I'm happy to introduce today's thought leaders, Claire Ernst, Dr. Chris Sinkowski, Jessica Meinsinger, and Owen Dahl. Thanks everyone for joining us today. So Let's go ahead and start with our first question of the day. Um, we just had that poll question. As, as we saw, staffing is the one that is ruling right now. Uh, and y'all are very consistent with a poll question that we had back in September. We asked in the MGMA stat poll and 58% of medical practices said that staffing is their biggest challenge heading into 2023. That has not changed. So. I'm going to turn to our esteemed panelist right now and see where everyone is. What are some biggest challenges uh, that you're seeing in 2023? Um, so let's start with Dr. Sinkowski. Uh, what is the top challenge or a top challenge you want to share with us right now? Well, I guess I can jump on the staffing a little bit since that's coming out of your poll. And, and as I'm a surgeon, so I work in a practice environment and also a hospital environment. And so just to give you some more numbers, I think that, you know, everyone talks about the nursing shortage, but it's definitely everyone, you know, whether it's an MOA or front end office people or, or revenue cycle people, we're short everywhere. And um, what I think is that you have to start with the premise now that you're never going to have enough people. There's never going to be enough nurses. There's never going to be enough of whatever you're looking for. So, and, and that's on a three year or five year horizon. So retention is critical. You have to be nice to people. Like I tell all my doctors and my faculty, <laughs> say hello to a nurse, please tell them they're doing a good job. 
realize that all of your new people that are brand new at their jobs have to be nurtured because the, the numbers are just not there and they're not there in the three to five year horizon. Dr. Sinkowski, thank you. That was a great point and uh, something I think we can all take advice from. So thank you. Jessica, I'll ask you next, what, what's a major challenge you're seeing there that you want to share with our audience? Absolutely. I totally concur. It's staffing is uh, the number one issue that I'm seeing when I talk with physicians or practices. And, you know, pre-pandemic, physician turnover was about six or seven percent, and that was fairly consistent. Post-pandemic, you know, it is just off the charts. In a recent uh, MGMA stat poll, four in 10 practices said that they had seen physicians retire early or leave the practice. And it's costing the healthcare system billions of dollars. And it's it's very disruptive to patients. It's disruptive to staffs. And I think, you know, um, playing on what Dr. Sankowski said, you know, in, in addition to having a strong CEO and COO of practices and hospital systems, you really need a chief retention officer. You need someone who is absolutely dedicated to keeping staff in place, to developing those talents, and to limiting disruption to the system and really providing the best patient care. So, you know, if you think of, of our of healthcare in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I mean, the goal is patient care, is the very best patient care. Well, the foundation to our pyramid are physicians and, and all of the providers and all of the healthcare workers that make this, this system work. So the foundation has to be strong. And when that's strong, you know, then we're able to meet the goal of the very best patient care we can provide. Okay. Thank you for that, Jessica. Um, Owen, uh, I'd like to hear from you. What's a challenge that you're seeing out there? Well, I hate to sound like a broken record, uh, but both uh, Dr. Sinkowski and Jessica talked about uh, staffing. The poll talked about staffing and so on, and I think that's very true. Uh, the, the interesting thing to me, though, is that it's not just recruiting, it's retention. And the whole idea of retention, as, as, as we look at the younger generations, as we look at the kinds of scenarios that, that we're facing, <clears throat> really, we, we can talk about fringe benefits and pay, say, pay, pay and wages and all that sort of stuff. But uh, what I'm seeing more is the desire for the staff to be more involved in the practice. Uh, to, to jump on the mission statement, to identify a purpose behind what's going on, and then to have a lot of involvement with kind of what the future looks like and with the practices that we work with that have taken that kind of approach, uh, the retention factor has increased greatly uh, and the turnover is reduced. So, uh, you know, it's hiring right and, and then retaining right. And so uh, as, as we look at that, but I, I would also want to comment on a couple of other things just real quickly. In the poll, it talked about the revenue cycle and clearly the revenue cycle with Medicaid redetermination, the PHE and a lot of these other kinds of things that are coming down the road, it, it gets a little bit scary. Uh, and then I find it interesting as well in the poll uh, that uh, today 1% in the, in the September poll, 2% said technology. And uh, uh, 
you know, I'm I'm fearful of the chat GPT, the AI, and uh, remote patient monitoring, and and the the loss of PHE and that sort of thing as to what's going to happen there. So I suspect as we go throughout the year, we're going to see that technology question pop up uh, and to be a greater a greater need and a greater area of concern than than what we saw today. Thank you, Owen. Um, Claire, I'll let you. Uh... Uh, finish on this question. Can you give us anything from the regulatory arena we can wring our hands about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, the poll indicated that staffing, revenue, technology expenses are all, you know, certainly challenges. Uh, I would say that all the federal policies and regulations that are going on impact all those challenges. And and that federal policies are essentially the undercurrent that pulls many of these issues with it. So, for instance, take reimbursement. For the last three years, we fought these significant cuts in Medicare reimbursement. The whole reason that these came about was a regulatory reason. It was because there were certain increases to office visits within RVUs. And when those increased, it triggered budget neutrality uh, requirements. Therefore, there were cuts across the board. So that is a you know, regulatory issue. And because a lot of commercial rates are also based off of Medicare, it's more far reaching than just, you know, if you have a high Medicare population, or if you take prior authorization, for instance, and a, like compare that or like relay that to staffing. Uh, we've heard from many of you that you've had to hire or redistribute part-time or full-time staff to deal with these prior authorizations. So we're working with the federal government to essentially rein in some of these, um, you know, like to put some guardrails in place on these practices. And hopefully in doing so, we'll be able to speed up efficiencies, limit requirements, and help, you know, alleviate some of these staffing burdens. All right. Thank you so much. So everyone, that was our first big building block we wanted to tackle here. We know that there are a lot of challenges. We've been interacting with the MGMA audience here for years and hearing these and staffing obviously uh, continues to be just such a major challenge. So huh, well, let's take a, a deep breath, kind of exhale and move on to the next building block. And that's really looking at some trends and innovations then. We know that those challenges are there. So how do we begin to address those trends and challenges? Um, Claire, I want to I wanna stay with you for this. Um, you got in a little bit into that regulatory arena with us, but I'd like for you to share what's going on. What is, I know that you uh, you and I joked about this offline, that you can talk about this for an hour or maybe more, um, giving us an overview of all the regulatory issues that are taking place right now. Um, but maybe in two or three minutes, what can you share with us about the regulatory arena? What do we need to be aware of? Yeah, I'll try to keep it much briefer than an hour. Um, so I would say that what we're dealing with this year is not drastically different than what we're dealing with in the last several years. And honestly, way before that, for better or for worse, a lot of our advocacy issues and priorities are pretty evergreen with, you know, physician reimbursement, all these administrative burdens. Um, so I think like going into this year, we're really looking at Medicare payment and how to reform that while simultaneously addressing Medicare solvency issues. Issues. So any solutions that are going to address insolvency, we want to make sure it doesn't, um, you know, disadvantage practices. 
I think, you know, there's, we have prior authorization reform that we're dealing with that I mentioned previously, but something that's a little bit newer um, involves the FTC and how aggressive that they've, that they've been so far, even the last two months in carrying out their priorities. We're seeing, um, you know, a proposed rule on banning all non-competes, and there are some states that already do that, but to have a federal ban on that will, you know, have some consequences for practices. Uh, and so that's one thing that we're starting to look at a little more carefully. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out too that, you know, we deal a lot with not just the agencies, but Congress. And with this new Congress, we have, unlike the last year, the last Congress, we have a split uh, chambers. We have a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. And even within those parties, we have even larger factions. Uh, we've seen, you know, some pretty unprecedented uh, events happening with the speaker vote. And so I think it's going to be difficult to get things done congressionally. And so in terms of trends, um, I think we'll be looking to the executive branch to sort of flex more of their regulatory arm when it comes to policymaking and perhaps less to Congress to get that done. Okay. Claire, quick follow-up. I think you addressed it, but not from a political standpoint, but just from a getting stuff done standpoint, is it better to have one party rule the roost so they can push things through? Or is there just gridlock when you have uh, the different parties uh, in power? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I would say that, yes, that's a tricky question. I would say that the thing that I've noticed when it comes to the sort of, um, you know, when it comes to the fact that like what you mentioned about, so last year there was, you know, it was a blue wave. Um, okay. So yes, in some ways you can get things done because you don't have as much, um, you know, tension, but I always see politics as a pendulum. So once you make one big move in one direction, you just have to wait for like essentially the next administration or the next Congress to move right. in the other. So we've seen it right with the ACA, like that's still stuck, but there's been a, you know, that was passed by reconciliation. It was essentially shuttled through um, and the Republicans didn't want it. And we've seen the backlash from that. And so like to answer your question, it's like, yes or no, kind of depends. <laughs> right. Right. And it wasn't ma a matter of is it good policy or not, but just policy. It's policy. So it's policy. You make steps forward and then you go backwards and then you just continue on. Thank you. Thank you from your view from D.C. So, <laughs> Owen, let's turn to you now. So we have interviewed you and had you help us uh, kind of navigate through efficiencies and practices and processes as well. And really what we're seeing at MGMA is a lot of uh, healthcare leaders taking an added role of project manager, so to speak. So what are you seeing from a lean and Six Sigma uh, perspective in practices? Well, first of all, I wanna thank Claire and her team for taking care of that other stuff up there at the 10, 20 or 30,000 foot level. Uh, and what we really have to work on, and, and I, I, I appreciate the question about project management, because I think what happens today is that uh, we're, we're seeing the, the need to identify projects and to deal with specific issues to fix the processes. You know, Jessica talked about the patient satisfaction and good patient quality. Well, we're talking a lot more about the patient flow and the access question 
And how does how do we deal with that? And what we're finding is that if people are open to uh, innovative ideas, going to 10-hour days, working with flex scheduling, uh, doing some Saturday, Sunday work, different kinds of things like that. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, where I live, uh, every Friday afternoon, every doctor's office closes. And uh, I, I find that to be, a, as, as a patient, I, I find that to be a bit disturbing. So I think that we need to, as a, as, as a you know, in, internal type of thing, as opposed to the external aspects that that Claire talked about, whether we're whether we're part of a hospital system, we've been uh, uh, purchased by a venture capitalist, or we're in a very large group, or we're a solo practice. Uh, it's still, really, the issue is how do we manage these projects? And these projects then uh, can go from uh, such things as how do we answer the phone correctly? How do we bring in a new patient? Uh, is it worthwhile retaining these certain patients? And how do we go about that? The cost benefit of retention versus new is pretty amazing uh, that the better off we are in retaining a customer, uh, you know, the, 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 the better our growth is going to be. And so in the long run, if we can retain patients and keep that system going, the value-based payment contracting, a lot of these other kinds of things that are coming to us are going to be very positive impacts. But how do we manage that? We don't manage it by sitting in our office. We manage it by getting out. And, and in, in Lean Six Sigma terms, we call it GEMBA, G-E-M-B-A, which means get out and walk around and actually see what's going on in the office and not live in there. And what you do with that is you actually end up interacting with your staff. And by interacting with the staff, you come up with some incredibly good ideas that the staff can feel comfortable in implementing. But you don't do that without thinking project-wise. A process is that cycle of service. A project is taking apart those processes and looking at what, where our weaknesses are, where our, our roadblocks are, and that sort of thing. So <clears throat> I think that there's a number of things that we can do and that we should focus on. And the, the educational component that MGMA offers relative to the Greenbelt program for Lean Six Sigma and other things like that can really help the today's administrative team uh, go and grow in that whole area of project management. All right, Owen, thank you for that. And I did wanna say that Owen does offer a Greenbelt course here at MGMA. If anybody really wants to hone in on that project management skill set, uh, that's the way to go. And I'm hearing one theme already just in the early part of this and it's retention. Dr. Sinkowski brought up uh, retention earlier. Uh, Owen just brought up retention of patients. So it's whether it's uh, retention of staff, retention of those patients, that does seem to be a common theme here. So something to consider, maybe we dig into even a little bit deeper as we move along. So Jessica, I wanted to ask you as far as trends, innovations, anything else that's piquing your interest. And I really want to hone in on that physician comp standpoint. I know that's a particular uh, topic area that is near and dear to you. So what can you tell us what's going on in the physician comp side of things? You know, I completely agree that, that due to the pain and disruption of staffing challenges, that you're seeing more um, proactive and progressive practices and hospital systems 
um, really having a more data-driven and generational approach to physician compensation, meaning that you could have physicians from several different generations that you're hiring onto your staff and their priorities are somewhat different, their communication preferences are different. And so I'm, I'm seeing more data-driven approaches to designing those compensation plans and offsetting that with needs for work-life balance, um, just having more flexibility to those plans so that you can, it, like Owen said, recruit the right team to your practice and your hospital system and then retain them and grow that team. And that is just, it's, it's so important. And I think what I'm starting to see is more transparency in compensation between uh, practices and hospitals and their physicians and more collaboration in that compensation, which I think is so important. And really that's how that, that data-driven approach and, and they're just as MGMA's data dive is just unparalleled. I mean, it's a tremendous tool for uh, practices and provider compensation professionals to really uh, build these plans that will attract the right physicians and providers into the system and keep them. So I, I think using that data, using those tools, the data dive gets better every year. The benchmarks are phenomenal. So it helps you be competitive in terms of recruitment and retaining your, your staff. Um, but also keeps you in line with, you know, your compensation methodology of your institution, making sure those plans are, you know, meet fair market value and are commercially reasonable. So there's, I, I'm definitely seeing a, a shift to meet those staffing uh, challenges and really giving physicians and, and nurses and uh, physicians assistants more of what they need to be successful in their positions. Mm -hmm. Jessica, I, I had to write this down because you said data-driven several times. You were really hammering that home and give sure. us an idea of what that looks like in practice then. It's, you know, really developing your physician comp package uh, by using that data. What does it look like? Well, it looks like one size doesn't fit all. So you need to meet your team where they are. And you can use the data to look at that individual physician instead of looking at an entire department. And that physician um, may have more productivity that justifies higher compensation. Uh, another physician may be providing additional benefits to that department. And, and I, I'm telling you, I think the pay disparity is a major issue that's facing physicians that I work with. And these data-driven decisions really help identify and address um, gender pay equity and other pay equity issues that are challenges to the system. We need as many physicians to stay in the system as we can, as we face the shortages that are we're already seeing and will continue to see. Well, as we emerged out of the pandemic and people had sort of a, a different outlook on life after, you know, experiencing a very different uh, lifestyle there for a while, um, did you see the demands change uh, from the individual standpoint of what they were asking for? It, was it still just the bottom line of money or were there other demands that they wanted bundled into that compensation package? I think it's communication. It's two-way communication and transparency with administration and with practice leaders. It is um, 
work-life balance is absolutely an issue. And we have more physicians than ever and, and healthcare leaders than ever who are burned out and struggling, um, really treading water every day. So that changes your priorities. You know, if we go back to that Maslow's hierarchy of needs example, you know, you have to be whole and healthy uh, in order to bring your best to your to your work, to your practice, to your patients. So I think it, it, um, it has reprioritized and sort of peeled back some of the stress fractures that were already in the system, exacerbated those. And, and it's, it's changed people's priorities somewhat. And there's also generational differences in priorities. And I think we're all seeing that. Okay, well, thank you for that. Dr. Sinkowski, I will let you uh, uh, back clean up on this particular topic area. I know you can go in a lot of different directions here. I wanted you to start out with physician leadership because your first answer had elements of that as well, of really building that culture and how important that was. But are there innovations or there's some trends you're seeing right now in physician leadership? I would just like try to maybe step off of everyone else's comments. I think that the RBU compensation system is starting to break and is failing more than it ever, ever has. And so if you're leading a big practice or you're looking at hospital-based practices or even just product service lines, and you see the physicians just focused on this RBU hamster wheel, and we can't break out of it. And we, we just sort of saw it happen, as mentioned by Claire, in that the increases in RVUs that some physicians saw didn't realize because it, it's a fixed pie and the diluted out the conversion factor. So I think that we need to start thinking about breaking that mindset of RVUs as the only productivity measure. And we are, we, we give lip service to quality and patient satisfaction and so forth, but most physician contracts are still RVU based. I think RVUs are part of the currency, but they're not the economy. And so we have to sort of think about these, where we get value and as a practice, how are you valuable to your patients? I'll give you a, a discrete example. If you just trend the conversion factor payment with an MGMA data on a physician and their dollar per RVU compensation, it's very different. So the difference between that $37 or $35 we get from Medicare versus the dollar per RVU stat for whatever specialty, there's a gap there. That gap is value. So where, what does that mean? Like, we need to start thinking about that stuff. What are we providing vis-a-vis -vis our practice and our patients or vis-a-vis -vis a healthcare system? You know, where do we provide value beyond just a bunch of RVUs? And I think the value-based system, you know, and the value-based payments play into that a little bit, but they're clunky and, and the physician groups are not driving that as much. They're driving it more in primary care for sure. And some of the really innovative um, value-based, you know, products and people, you know, with this Medicare Advantage groups and so forth in the in the outpatient setting are definitely able to bend the cost curve in their practices. But when you start to cross into a healthcare system and see where I see where there are hospital-based physicians, it's it's not been working very well. And we hide behind, well, I'll just make more. I'll just my doctors will do more RVUs, and we're not seeing that value, and it's also not translated into fair market calculations. So this, this transparency we're talking about, about doctors willing to share their comp and their productivity, productivity is a real leveler because we just traditionally haven't known what, what's going on in other markets. And we need to communicate that so we can look at where our value is. It's not just RVUs anymore. So I think that's uh, 
if you're thinking about how to look at uh, both reimbursement and compensation structure, it can't, our reuse is just one metric. It is not the economy anymore. Mm -hmm. When you're talking with your teams, then you said, I wrote this down. You said it's not just RVUs anymore. What are you hearing back when y'all are having a huddle or you're having a strategy session so you can understand uh, what it will take to retain a talented physician so they don't go somewhere else? What's, what are they telling you? What, what do they want? Well, you know, so if you look at five physicians in a particular division and you might say, well, the highest producing one, he's good, leave him alone. Well, it might be that they have the worst, you know, patient satisfaction scores, or um, there might be other things that are valuable to, for you or things you need to uh, accomplish. Maybe they don't do their administrative tasks. And we've all know this. It's all built into your layer cake of compensation. But I think those other things are going to have to be sort of much more transparent and valued. You know, you, you have people now valuing a surgeon that decides not to operate on somebody because of the big spectrum of that payment or that episode or that patient care quality requirement, it's better that they don't operate on them. So how, having that conversation with a surgeon who just thinks it's all about RVUs is really does throws them for a loop. So, so how am I doing it? So if I have two comparable physicians and maybe one's got higher RVUs, but the other one has all the other things, well, that other person may be more valuable to me. So I have to have that discussion and say, this is why you're more valuable than, this is why you're less valuable, even though you think you're the high producer. And start to have those conversations so people as a group will provide, you know, the quality that your patients deserve. And fundamentally, that drives everything, right? Good quality means we're all going to do fine. You bring up a great point there. So you've got a, a high producer, but maybe lower in some of those uh, people skills and all the other administrative things that are going on. What have you found is easier to train if it's not inherent or natural is it easier to create a producer or to train and create someone who has all of those other skills it's definitely easier to get them while they're younger okay it's hard <laughs> to break old dogs like me so that's number one <laughs> definitely get them early if you're a physician leader if you have anyone who's disruptive you got to nail that quick and classically the surgeon most likely the most productive surgeon is probably the most disruptive and you can't have any of that so that's got to be quashed immediately. And then you've got to engender those that are the poor, you know, the people that are the poor documenters. I think there's a lot of value in encouraging those folks. They can come up to speed. And so what you want, but you're right, it's hard to grow a go-getter, you know, um, unless there's, they're generating empty RVUs or they're doing, maybe they're not so, you know, effective in terms of the indications or whatever. So I think you'd, you'd rather have them coming in hungry and out of the gate wanting to work hard and you can fix the other stuff. Okay. That is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to take this time before we switch to the next topic area um, to drop those uh, questions that you have in the Q&A, because I've got a set number of questions for our esteemed audience, our panelists, and then we're going to turn to you to provide the, uh, really drive the conversation for the last portion of this webinar. So please start dropping those in. So let's go on to our next big topic area. We've talked about the challenges. We've talked about the trends and innovations. Um, so let's talk about best practices for maximizing success. Um, Dr. Sinkowski, I wanna stay with you for this and really dig in with each of you panelists to provide us with an example, whether it's a case study or something else that you've experienced out there in the field or learned from 
a practice out there. So Dr. Sinkowski, what's a success story you can share with us? We've, we've <laughs> trolled the, <laughs> some of the challenges enough. So what's, what's out there? Where can you give us a little ray of sunshine? What's going on? Well, I think that, um, you know, I'm, the best example I thought of is sort of, sort of talking about the dyad leadership style between physicians okay. and administrators, all of whom are burnt out, right? So always looking for the win-win. And, and the hard part about that is, especially on the hospital or systems-based side, it's there's the, the set that wall between hospital side revenue and practice side revenue. And sort of getting around that by looking at, you know, quality measures or service line uh, metrics generally can get you a win-win. I work in cancer surgery. So looking at um, sort of the outputs in a you know, service line, looking at all of our colon cancer patients and sort of grouping all the numbers together, whereas you might not always see the other side of the wall as a physician practice. If you can see that side and say, listen, if we maximize our throughput, if we work together and not worry about where the money goes or who's making it, let's just work together on a plan in general, the physicians are happier, their revenue goes up, the hospital is more efficient, their revenue goes up. So I'm always looking for that win-win based on a product line or a specific disease diagnosis, because especially a higher volume breast cancer, colon cancer or something, where that, that wall is, can be broken down, where people don't always wanna share, you know, who's making what. Okay, thank you for that. Um... Let's see, we have a question that did come in from Melanie and we will get to that. It's on uh, delays in payments. I know everyone's uh, very aware on that one and we wanna get to that soon, uh, Melanie. Um, but we're gonna get a success story or something that's a win um, from Jessica first. So Jessica, what can you share with us and maybe in one of these FizComp negotiations or what, what's been a win out there for you? You know, I, I am, we've talked about this, um, you know, I am seeing more organizations being more proactive with their physician compensation plans. And, you know, best practices right now really means a physician compensation plan that's clear, that's easy to understand, that's based on current data metrics, um, that is streamlined and easy to explain to the physician, is 100% transparent, I, I cannot stress that enough. The transparency um, builds the trust and a lack of transparency really erodes the trust. If people don't understand the basis for their compensation plans, then, then they get um, anxious and nervous and it's really contributing to burnout um, as far as what I'm seeing with clients. Um, these compensation plans are designed with productivity and quality and value metrics that are actually attainable. The physician understands the metrics and, you know, it, and they're it made for that physician to succeed and encourages that physician. Um, best practices in terms of physician compensation plans means that there's a generational filter approach to these plans that one size doesn't fit all. So there are uh, flexibility for work-life balance needs and challenges. Um, and also, you know, it, it's uh, letting the physicians on your team know that there's pay equity and that transparency is, um, you know, what confirms that everybody's being paid fairly. And that's so important. And, I, and finally, best practices really, it means reviewing physician compensation plans at least every three years. 
Instead of letting physicians' compensation plans continue to auto-renew year after year without touching base with that physician, um, taking a proactive approach and sitting your physicians down to say, hey, this is what's going right. This is what we want to support you on. Um, you know, this is where your productivity falls. These are your quality metrics. Um, we're all here together. We're a team and we're going to work on, uh, you know, continuing what's working and improving what's not. And, and that's really best practices. You know, a lot of the physicians that I work with and practices that I talk with, you know, if, if, if there's sort of this, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. But I'm telling you that, that the more proactive you are about addressing physician compensation and the more transparent you are with that physician, the more trust you will have and the more physician satisfaction you will have. Are you finding good buy-in then on transparency when you're consulting with a practice? Are they, sure, we'll do that. Or are they giving you reasons why they don't want to be as transparent as you're talking about? Well, I mean, I think there are challenges on both sides and I certainly see that. I just know, you know, it's like the old adage, the truth will set you free. That's how it is with compensation. But the model needs to be simple enough that physicians understand where their compensation comes from and that you're not putting, you're not giving bonuses or structuring bonuses that can never be attained. You know, that, that doesn't feel like goodwill. So I, I would just, it, for practice administrators and hospital administrators, the more proactive and positive you can be about this, uh, the better the better this will be in terms of your relationship with your your physicians. Okay, thanks for that. Owen, let's turn to you now. We have talked many times on efficiency, uh, dimming and all of his uh, practices that he developed a long time ago. You have shared those with me, but um, I know you've got a lot of them, but let's just drill down, give us an efficiency win in a practice. And, and I know you like to measure things. So show us what happened when you kind of uh, met with a practice, there were a lot of inefficiencies and they put those efficiencies into you know, those new processes into place and how that, how that was a win for them. Well, you put me, you put me in a lot of pressure because there's all kinds of different things that we've seen. Uh, we're, we're, uh, uh, as you focus on projects, like we talked about earlier, as we focus on projects, one of the keys that we've learned is, is not to try to fix it entirely and then fix the whole thing. In other words, don't try to get a 50 or a 70% gain. Uh, take a 10% win. And <clears throat> so what we've seen in a lot of these practices is, is those smaller wins. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, topic areas of uh, you know, scheduling patients and trying to get them in for the access question we mentioned earlier, uh, the whole revenue cycle question, what can we do to eliminate denials? What can we do here? And uh, even even scheduling and Dr. Sinkowski with the with the idea of the surgery schedule, when do you actually get that patient into that to the OR and, and how does that work? So we've seen wins and, and again, measuring those wins, we can see a 5% gain, we can see a 10% gain. But uh, more, more than that, what I, what I really thought would be important is, is, number one, I'm so glad I'm not in your position as an office manager or in the leadership role directly involved in a practice. And, and I say that uh, advisedly because I don't know how you get anything done. 
with all the interruptions and all the pressure and all the changes that you have. But when we talk about project management, one of the best practices that we've learned is not to jump to conclusions. In other words, I'm so busy, I've got to figure out a solution to this. So here's the solution and, and then go off and, and, and forget, you know, being able to change things. What we've learned in, in our efforts of the different uh, mentalities and different things we've worked on is to take time to plan, uh, take time to get your team involved and so on. And, and, and okay, time management. Christina did a great job of writing a time management article and the insights that came out this week. Uh, but, you know, what, what I think is important is that what we've learned over the years is, is to take the time to think through your project, identify the tasks, identify the kinds of things. And those are the kinds of activities that are bringing us the 5%, 10% gain. Uh, and 5% and may not seem like a lot, but if you've got a million dollars and, and you gain you know, 5% on a million dollars, that, that's a lot of money in terms of helping you address those other issues such as supply, uh, supply chain management, uh, staffing increases, benefit increases, uh, and different things of that nature. And then probably the other benefit or the other best practice that I've seen is I've, I've just thoroughly enjoyed listening to Jessica and Claire and Dr. Sinkowski today uh, in terms of learning. And you know what's the best practice that we can do for ourselves is to take the time to learn. And, and so if we, if we don't jump to conclusions, we take the time to work things through and we take the time to help ourselves develop and so on. And then take, take a look at our own management style. Are we theory Y managers from McGregor? Or are we theory X managers? Uh, Daniel Pink with his uh, book and his discussion that he had a few years ago with an MGMA conference talked about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations. You know, what are we doing for those kinds of things? And so when, when, when we look at, at stuff like that, what I'm really hoping happens from today's discussion is that uh, instead of saying, okay, here's an example of a perfect way to go, that we break this down into the project pieces and that we help and work our team and move forward with what's going on. Okay, well, thank you for that. I wanted to follow up with you real quick, Owen. Um, what is the best advice then? So if you've identified an inefficiency with a practice, but you had just mentioned the overwhelm that a practice administrator may be feeling, um, asking them to stop and put it, implement a new process in place, uh, that could feel overwhelming to do that. Even if you know the way you've been doing it isn't the best way, it's, it's the way you're doing it. And so you don't have to stop there. How do you get that across um, so that they can embrace that and move forward? Well, the, to pick up on something that Jessica said, she said, if, if, it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, guess what? If it ain't broke, it'll break at some point. <laughs> and, and so what we, what we need to then think about is, is what, what, what can we do and how, how, do we, how do we approach what's the best way? And <clears throat> given... The, the, one of the biggest wastes that we have in our practices is that we do not use the brains that the employee has. We don't engage the employee. So what's the best way to help that busy, busy, busy practice? Delegate. Delegate and develop the staff so that they're involved in the solution. And by getting them involved in the solution, that makes the change that much quicker and that much, that much more effective. 
So I think that I think it's really important for us to 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 look at that and, and say, what can we do to develop our staff? What can we do to move to move forward with how how we will go ahead? All right. Thank you for that. So, Claire, before we turn to questions from the audience, and we do have quite a few coming in. Um, what does a win look like for a practice from the regulatory point of view? <laughs> Good question, Daniel. Um, so I think in my world, broadly speaking, success takes place and takes shape in many different forms. I, I think that, you know, success can be complying with federal laws and rules without diverting significant resources away from patient care to do so. That's part of what we try to do in government affairs is um, help out with that. I would also say that after the last few years of COVID and inflation and workforce shortage issues, just even staying viable is a success story. Um, but I think a different question could be like, what does a win look like for medical groups just in general? Basically, so what are we doing in government affairs to try to achieve that? And so we're trying to like, you know, we're in line with what everyone else has been saying. We're trying to expand workforce, uh, which is, you know, everything from trying to increase graduate medical education slots. Um, we're trying to decrease administrative and regulatory burden. So what I mentioned about prior authorization, we're trying to increase, uh, you know, reimbursement. So it actually covers the cost of delivering care, but it, it is the government. So these changes don't happen overnight. Um, but I will point out that after, you know, years of it's more of a small wins type of thing that keeps me going. So after years of trying to convince CMS to include more plans such as Medicare Advantage within the scope of a rule to reform prior authorization practices, we were able to finally get that done in December. And, you know, the last few years throughout the year, we've been asking Congress to avert these cuts to Medicare reimbursement, and we were able to, at the last minute, largely avert them. So, um, and during the pandemic, we were able to secure billions for, uh, and provide relief funds to keep practices open. So I think, you know, success is, is relative, but um, I, I, I think this is like a good place also to just thank all of our members that are on this call and 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 also who are not because they've armed me and my team with the information that's been really helpful and critical in being able to achieve those successes. That is awesome. That's, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for all the work y'all are doing and all the MGMA members who are part of these campaigns as well. So thank you all so much, uh, consultants and Claire. Thank you. Appreciate y'all. popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. 
Visit mgma.com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.